Welcome to the Mountain Students Team podcast, a podcast specifically for our students team. At Mountain Students, we make more and better disciples of middle and high school students by connecting them to someone who loves God and loves them to help develop an authentic faith. We believe everything rises and falls on the strength of our disciple makers and our process to connect students to them. My name is Sean. I'm our lead students pastor, and I'm going to be hosting today with a very special guest, Luke Erickson, our executive pastor here at Mountain. Hey, Sean, I'm really glad to be in the conversation. And I'm super glad for anyone who is listening, especially those who invest in students right here. I'm blessed to be a dad and grateful to all the investment that all of the student leaders make. So I got two kids in the middle school and high school. So Mountain Students got more kids coming. So I am very much interested in and uh, needing to have a strong student ministry leadership and just as many good, godly adults as possible born into my kids. I want that and need that as a father. And then, of course, very proud and grateful for that as a pastor who's who's part of this church, too. So thanks to all those student leaders who are giving of themselves and uh, modeling what it means to follow Jesus. And that's really important when we talk about really strengthening our disciple makers. A lot of it's just talking about how can we ourselves become better disciples. And mm-hmm. recently there's been some studies that have continued to show one of the best practices to grow closer to Jesus or one of the best indicators that someone is following Jesus is being able to dive into the Bible. And mm-hmm. that's not just knowing all the Bible facts. I grew up doing Bible Bowl. And sure. So uh, we went through Luke and Acts and I can tell you, I don't know many facts. I mean, I can probably pull them out, but I don't know if that helped me as a follower of Jesus. Jesus, but knowing the biblical story and working towards that is something Mm -hmm. that we've seen time and time again to be one of our best tools to grow as Jesus followers, to become better disciples. And so uh, you've been working on some materials. I know I had the opportunity to go through a six-month cohort. Mm -hmm. You've created this event just recently, Discovering the Bible Weekend. That was a really impactful weekend for many. But what has caused you to really dive in and say, hey, I want to learn more about the Bible and share that? Besides the fact that you're a pastor, you have a degree Mm -hmm. in Bible, it sounds like there's something else that has kind of prompted this dive. And I grew up similarly, similarly to you. I never did Bible bowl. I thought those kids were dorks. So I didn't do that. We we drove 40 minutes (laughs) to the church to do Bible bowl, even if that's how committed we were. (laughs) I did lots of uh, church stuff, lots of Bible study. Um, and I'm grateful for it too, even even if I maybe wasn't showing that at the time that it was happening. But familiarity with some of the facts and stats and characters and those, that's part of the process. You just got to learn about it. In the, in the same way, uh, learning the rules of any game or all the parts of a football field or something, that's not going to automatically make you a better football player necessarily. You do have to have some skill and ability there, but it's part of the process. You got to so, be aware so of those Daniels is not going to be a great <laughs> running back, even though he can call amazing plays because he knows the ins and outs. Yeah, everybody has their role to play and uh, all the that knowledge picked up. It's not necessarily wasted. You do got to kind of get some of that familiarity. And I'm hoping to just encourage that. And I've come up with some things that have been helpful to me and helpful to my family and seem like they're being useful to other people. So yeah, you describe some of the history that we have. We, we've been thinking a lot about this and then trying to share that uh, beyond as well. I guess uh, I've been driven by two questions primarily, especially recently in thinking more deeply about these things. The two questions are, what is the Bible? 
And the second one is, what story are we a part of? What is the Bible in the first place? And then also maybe some clarification on what isn't the Bible. And then really thinking about what story are we a part of? What story am I caught up in? What story am I living out? Uh, what story is the Bible telling? I mean, I think the, the assumption is the Bible is making a claim on my life. The, the Bible is giving me a way to interpret reality, to think about the story of the world and then the story of my life and how it fits into that. And so what is that story trying to say? Where does it start? Where does it end? Where am I in the middle of it? And how do I uh, shape my life accordingly? So I think those questions are really relevant. I'm not uh, sure that we've always had the best answers, that I've always had the best answers to those questions. And so I've just been trying to think about that and um, search for the, some, some good answers and some good guides, because I think if I can get those questions, get a good beat on those, then I think that's going to give me a better chance to live in the right way and live my life according to the story and aim my life in the right direction and um, kind of fit in line with God's design for me as a human, for me as a follower of Jesus. So those are the things that have been driving me. You want me to talk, I guess, about the tool itself that I've been working on? Oh, yeah. No, that sounds great. I was going to say, before we get there, though, okay. I think one part that might be helpful, because we have some middle school leaders, some high school leaders, you also talked about this being a tool that you mm. actually developed for your family, too, yeah. for, for your kids to begin to understand the story. Because when you look at the book, Genesis to Revelation, sure. Songs of Solomon, all of those things in between, like that's some pretty deep stuff, some stuff that might go over the head of even an elementary student. So was that a little bit of kind of, does this tool work for them or is it just yeah. for adults or how, how does that work? I started to try to create something. I didn't know what I was trying to make when I started something that summarized the Bible and answered right? those two questions of like, what is yeah. the story and, and how does my life fit in it? Yeah. Um, so I, I didn't know what that would be is trying to summarize, trying to visualize. I, I like thinking in pictures or little icons or something that could succinctly say, what is this thing that I'm holding in my hand? That's the thickest book that I've probably ever picked up. It's probably true for all of us. So how could we make it manageable and understandable, maybe less intimidating? How could we uh, invite more people into it? Because a lot about it seems like an obstacle, seems difficult, seems like too high of a wall to get over. So anything like that, I was just kind of working around trying to figure out something. So I think what uh, ultimately ended up with is something probably a little longer than what I thought I was going to create, but I do think it has a value. And um, yes, was trying to think about what would be relevant and understandable for my kids, which at the time were the youngest one was seven and the oldest one was 15. So right in that pocket, it's got to be something that could be a framework that could be onboarded by even an elementary aged kid and then still relevant for really anyone who's trying to find their way and get a framework for approaching the Bible. So yeah, it felt like it needed to land for my family. It was a function of my leadership of my family, which of course happens within the context of this broader church, which has awesome, um, uh, you know, discipleship for kids and students. And yet I have a role in that too, as a parent. And so I'm, I'm trying to complement their development, their pursuit of God's best for them and their growth as a disciple of Jesus. So it was definitely aimed to be accessible, I suppose, like a newspaper article. I think, you know, news, most newspaper articles are written for whatever, fifth grade education kind of a thing, but obviously more than just fifth graders consume it. So kind of aim it in a similar way to be something that could uh, be relevant for a wide range of people. 
Yeah. So there's like layers to it where sure. a middle schooler might understand at a certain level, a high schooler, a college student, even a seminary student, I think can find some use from this framework and in a lot of ways create this map of sorts mm -hmm. uh, that allows you to not only know maybe where you're at in the story, but to be able to see the story together as a whole. Mm -hmm. And so let me say more about that. You alluded to map and that's one of the images that I've, I've used. Um, so I'm not going to say a lot about what the Bible isn't. I think we've sometimes been sold that the Bible is just a devotional grab bag. We pick out inspirational quotes from it. We paint them on the wall and that's fine. It does have lots of inspirational quotes or sometimes it's like a cookbook. It's got recipes for how do I live my life? How do I be a leader? How do I be a parent? How do I manage my money? And that's fine. It does have advice, but it's not necessarily primarily or only that kind of a thing. It's not just a textbook that's meant to um, craft doctrines and proof text, certain things like that. You can build doctrines out of it. That's not primarily what it is. I think if you're going to try to narrow it down, I, I, I'm persuaded that what it fundamentally is, is a story, or it certainly tells a story. Mm -hmm. It has a narrative arc to it, uses lots of different kinds of literature to convey that story. But I think seeing it as a story is uh, one of the most helpful ways to understand it. So that's where a couple images come in. One is the map idea, the mall map idea. What, what do you need? We're trying to find your way around the mall. You need the mall map so you can see the whole picture. Uh, so the whole picture part is crucial. And then the little you are here sticker is mm. crucial. A lot of times when we open the Bible, because it's so big, you can only handle it in small parts. So you're in a part, you're in the book of Galatians. Okay. Well, you are there, but where is there relative to everything else that the, mm. the Bible is trying to say? We need some skills to be able to locate ourselves and contextualize ourselves and get our bearings a little bit. Just wanted to do something that could provide a mall map kind of function. The other image I often use is thinking about the Marvel series. There's, I think, to date, uh, what, 30 Marvel Cinematic Universe movies? There's, there's a lot and there's TV shows now. And there's that TV are part shows of the whole and all thing. that. And so if someone were to say, I want to get acquainted with the Marvel Cinematic Universe, I want to kind of get, immerse myself in that story. And if your strategy for doing that was to watch random two minute clips in any kind of order from all 30 of those movies or those TV shows, if you did that for a year, would you have a, really a sense of what the Marvel Cinematic Universe was all about? Would you really know the characters? Would you know how the story flows? Would you have any sense of why certain things matter? I, I don't think you would. It, none of us would take that approach. We would sit down and we would watch the movies, whether they were in chronological order or whether they're in release date order. You know, you would, you would get the whole picture um, over time, kind of taking those bites but you, you try to get a sense of the whole. And I think that's what we're meant to do with the Bible, which is a library of all different kinds of literature put together by lots of different authors over a period of time, much longer than the Marvel Cinematic Universe that time period. But it is all trying to come together to tell a compelling and coherent story that is rich and that is relevant today as it was 2,000 years ago or 4,000 years ago. And I get to be a part of that. So, could we uh, find a way to get a grasp of that and not just uh, have our diet of the Bible be random two minute chunks that we can't piece together? So a lot of people, you know, a Bible bowl approach, strictly Bible bowl approach might be to just get random facts about the Bible. But if you can't put those pieces together to fit into some kind of coherent story, then it's going to lack the effect that I think the Bible was intended 
to have, which is to narrate a coherent story that ultimately features Jesus and then draws you in as a part of that, as a part of what God is doing in the world to put it all back together and, and all of that. So something that can help us do that, I was searching for that and uh, come up with a tool that I just called the Bible in 10 frames. So that's the summary, nothing magic necessarily about 10, you could do 12, you could do four, you could do 34, but uh, these 10 have seemed to kind of rise above the rest. And I think they help provide some of that mall map or to maybe modify the image a little bit. When you're down in the valley in the weeds of any particular Bible story, which it can, you can get disoriented and it's confusing. There's a lot of weeds. There's a lot of weeds. At least these could be like 10 uh, mountain peaks or 10 beacons that help you orient yourself. And even if you don't know exactly how to make sense of what's going on down here in the weeds, it's like, okay, we came from that peak and we're going toward that peak. So you can at least orient yourself with, with highlighting these 10 frames, these 10 episodes, if you will, these 10 moments that all kind of work together to move through the story that God is trying to tell in the Bible. And of course that continues even today. So the Bible in 10 frames is the tool comes as a result of trying to really answer the question, what is the Bible? I think in short, it's a story. And what story are we a part of? What story is the Bible telling? Well, I think these frames, when you line them up and you see how they work together, I think that gives at least one way to summarize what story is the Bible telling so that then I have a chance to figure out, well, what's my place in that story? How does that impact the story that God is writing with my life? And saying your visual of like the markers or the peaks mm -hmm. that kind of help your location it in some ways even reminded me of our role as group leaders or disciple mm -hmm. makers where we get to begin to know those markers because our sure. students probably don't have any idea where they're at. And so if we can begin to start training them to begin pointing at the markers as we go through different parts and begin to reiterate even some of the broader story and say, hey, here's where this particular week's content fits in. And if you're interested in how we pick our content in Mountain Students, the last podcast episode talked a little bit more about that with Chase and Charlie, but it's one of those things where our hope, and that is as a group leader, you can help them begin to get a lay of the land. So that after they graduate high school, it's not like, I don't know this whole story is together as one. Mm -hmm. uh, it's one of those things that they can walk away with feeling confident of, well, here's the different peaks and here's how the different pieces. And in some cases we can use this tool or another tool to be able to help us learn the overall story and then help begin to tell the the story of the journey of being able to put this all mm -hmm. together to be that one unified story that points points back to Jesus. Mm -hmm. And it's a framework. I, I don't know, you know, you go through it one time, you can read through the whole uh, tool here in about 15, 20 minutes. Is it going to be just so revolutionary and knock your socks off? I, I, I don't know. But uh, over time, if you adopt it and you start to see that, okay, this actually does work and the, the movement of the Bible actually, this, this helps me kind of follow it and uh, download it and integrate it then that's what it's designed to do over time, um, dripping it. And that's what I've been doing. I introduced with my family. We read through it uh, about a year ago, has pictures with it. We put the pictures in order across the living room floor and kind of got that sense. So yeah, did they walk away just totally transformed from that experience? I suppose not. There was some transformative things that I ha think happened in that moment. But now going forward, every time we talk about 
the Bible and try to, we, we can locate some things and situate it within the story and it just helps us make better sense of it. And that framework over time, I'm hoping will have the intended effect so that whenever my kids are off on their own and doing their own Bible reading and interpreting and discerning God's voice and figuring out the path for their life and who Jesus is and what that means for them, they've got some kind of framework to use that I think is helpful and useful and it can, um, kind of be a container to hold the the new experiences and the new information that they take on throughout their life. So let's let's go ahead and dive okay. into the tool and hear more. We're going to be linking a digital version of the booklet so you can be able to grab that in the show notes. And then there's also this really awesome bookmark that just kind of in some ways lays out the mm. different elements. And so if you're interested in that, talk to your student's pastor or grab Luke or I on the weekend. And we'd love to make sure to put one of those in your hand or mail it to you to make sure that you have the ability to see that bookmark and also see the the booklet so uh 10 frames where where is probably good to dive into to frame one all right let me go through the 10 frames i'll name them all and then we'll come back and i'll try to get through them succinctly all right because i might get excited talking about some but i'll discipline myself to just aim uh and get us through here in a a way that moves the 10 frames are one creation two rebellion three abraham four exodus five david six exile seven promise eight jesus nine church ten new creation the first seven would be found in what we call the old testament and then the last three uh, turn the page to the new testament so creation uh, begins like this in the beginning god made everything good god made men and women as the image of god God blessed them in a good land and told them to rule and multiply on the earth. This is rooted right in Genesis 1. There's a ton of themes packed in there. So we could just like sit in that first frame for a long, long time. And a lot of ways in students groups, we were able to dive into that first part uh, a little bit in our first series this school year. Yes, it's very rich. And I have found, I've often come back to this. There is a little bit of like Genesis one through three. There's a little bit of a, uh, everything I needed to know I learned in kindergarten effect kind of going on there. Like everything I really need to know is like rooted there. It's embedded there in Genesis one through three. Even if I haven't found it yet, you keep mining it and more just comes out. And uh, so, yeah, dwelling there in, in uh, the Genesis accounts of creation, it turns out it's not interested in talking about a lot of things we think it needs to talk about like the age of the earth or when the dinosaurs lived or exactly the mechanisms by which creation came into be. I'm not saying those are unimportant questions, just saying the Bible writers were not trying to answer them. When he goes back to the question, what is the Bible? The Bible is not telling us how the world was created. It was more about who. Yes. And what kind of world is this? Uh, How do we make sense of it? So it was created good. That's a key feature coming off uh, the first page. Humans were created to have a relationship with God and they have responsibility to multiply and rule and govern. And they have a choice about whether they're going to do that wisely or you know, in God's way or their own way. And that sort of sets up some tension. The, the, the question that leads from this frame to the next is the obvious one that we all know. And the question is like, okay, it was created good, but why isn't everything good right now? Okay. Cause we're talking about, you're, it's like, you tell me, oh, it was all created good, but you're talking about some different world that I don't I experience. Say, I'm not, I don't know yeah, that world. Right. I have not existed or lived in that world. Right. So why isn't everything good right now? That's the turn to the second frame, which is rebellion. And in a 
the simplest way to say it is humans choose their, choose their own way and they multiply violence and evil on the earth and they're sent out of the good land. So this is actually a nod even toward what's going to come later is the exile. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we'll flash forward to that and the exile's a flashback here. We had a beautiful relationship with God and this responsibility to flourish and be fruitful in the good land, but the choice to decide good and evil for ourselves, to see something that looked good in our eyes, irrespective of what God said was good. Now I'm going to define what's good. And I reach and I take that and that leads to something that is very not good. And now instead of being in communion and relationship with God, uh, humans are exiled from the good land. So something that uh, God didn't intend, God didn't desire, a distortion has been introduced. And so what ends up multiplying as humans multiply is also violence and chaos. Starts with Cain and Abel and just continues to go beyond just interpersonal things. And, and now by Genesis 11, like the whole world is infected with the consequences of this rebellion. So it goes out pretty quick. Frame one was Genesis one and two. Frame two is Genesis three through 11. And then frame three with Abraham is God's response to do something about it. God blesses Abraham's family in order to bless the whole world through them. That's the basics. And this is such a critical plot point for the whole Bible. Like it really is providing the energy for the rest of the Bible. You're going to see it when the the New Testament book of Acts reflects on the whole Jesus story. And they, they try to figure out what in the world is true now because of this Jesus. In light of this new person, yes. how do I make sense of everything yes. going on in the and, past? And the way that they talk about that story is Jesus as the ultimate fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham. God made a promise to bless the whole world. That's God's desire and intention. Now, the strategy that God chooses is to choose the one to bless the many. And you're going to see that theme come up over and over again. And so he, he makes this covenant, this uh, special agreement with Abraham and Abraham's family just for their own sake, just so they can huddle together and enjoy that communion. No, not just for that sake. So that all the world can experience that communion and that return and um, really be the humans that God created them to be. So God partners with Abraham for the sake of the whole world. So, and if you sit with this frame in particular, I think you can see so many echoes of Jesus's life, just as we have prepared this run with it series and dove into each part is so crazy to see the parallels that Abraham and, and Jesus have. And these are parallels, not new to us. It's actually things that the, the early disciples, the writers of the gospels, Paul is drawing on and highlighting towards so it's really cool to see something that was written so long sure. ago still have such a big impact today. And then, like you said, set the trajectory for the rest of the story. Yep. The thread runs all the way through. You can't underestimate the importance of Genesis 12 in the arc of the whole biblical story. So the, the question that Genesis 12 helped us answer was, like, is God going to abandon the world that's kind of spinning out of control? The answer is no. He responds and uh, moves through Abraham to bless the world. The question that I think about at the end of frame three is, uh, how is God's blessing going to come when there's so much evil? Because even though God is acting as a force for good through these people, well, mm-hmm. <laughs> number one, those people aren't like thoroughly good. They have a penchant toward evil. So sometimes they're joining with God to uh, produce some good things. And sometimes it's very much the opposite. And we just know evil still exists. And we see that ratcheted up in the Exodus. So you turn the page into the book of Exodus and there's Pharaoh and Egypt and God's people, God's chosen people, which are supposed to bring a blessing to the rest of the world. Like they're supposed to be building God's kingdom, but they're literally 
in Exodus building another kingdom. Uh, they're being assigned to this labor to build the kingdom of Egypt, like under the rule of the king of Egypt. And that's not good. That's not what God intended. And that goes even back to the idea that humans are here to rule. And that's often the kind of rule that we think about, but that was not the t- kind of rule that God was calling us to. God was calling for a fair rule. And we get to see in the nation of Egypt, yep. the rule that we often have become accustomed to now when we hear that. And that's the basic cry. God, this is unfair. And they cry out and God hears them. So God hears the cries of his people and he saves them from evil. And he promises to bring them to a good land. God will love them. He will be with them. He will teach them so that they can be a light to all nations. So again, the the promise to Abraham is still on, even in spite of evil, God saves from evil so that he can get that uh, promised blessing and that plan for blessing back on track. So just to point out three things, uh, God rescues his people, calls them into a special relationship with him, and again, gives them responsibility as a light to all nations, rescue leading to relationship and responsibility. So that's uh, God's design and what happens there in the Exodus. And that's kind of all the way through Exodus, through Deuteronomy, even into taking in taking uh, the steps into the new land in the book of Joshua. So we're six books deep into the Bible. Judges is that really ugly period. They're in the land, but they're clearly not being led well. And the question that really sets up frame five with David is like, who's going to lead God's people? Yes, they've been given this gift. There are a lot of these special people. They have this special task, but who is going to lead them? Because the things that we've been experiencing, especially in the book of Judges, are not working out toward the God, the things that God has intended. So, and in Bible college, this is that cycle repeated over and over again. This kind of very early on Todd of like the uh, people cry out for help because of the oppression God saves them. And then people turn right back to doing what they're doing again and again, answering the question, who's going to step up and lead. And even in the book of judges, you see good leaders and everything's going well. And then one bad leader and everything comes crashing down again. And it kind of has that dual effect of being uh, encouraging even as, is it, even as it is disappointing, right? It's disappointing mm-hmm. for obvious reasons because it's tragic. But then when you examine your own life and you see that cycle at play, it's, it's kind of like sneakily encouraging too. Well, even the people in the Bible that God chose, that God was partnering with. They're in the Bible. They were written yes. about it and yes. their accounts were saved for So for my experience is not altogether strange to God. I'm not so bad that like, oh, God's never seen anyone as bad as me before. No, God has. And God still makes promises and God still extends the hand of partnership. And God's promise and goal for the blessing of the whole world is still on track. And it's only going to come through people like you and me. And imagine being able to tell and preach that story, that frame to middle schoolers and high schoolers. They need to hear that on a regular basis. One of the things that I always like to say is I've not met an over-affirmed middle schooler. To be honest, you can probably say over-affirmed high schooler or or even just anybody being able to call it out in them and for them to know that God's not going anywhere, even when they screw up. That's actually one of the the biggest things we want to be able to have our students walk away with. Because even when they go off to college, oftentimes the thing that crashes their faith is they make one mistake and everything we've taught up until this point of God is still being there for them. They're like, I made too big a mistake. Yeah. I can't, God won't, God won't love me still. Sure. My group leader won't care about me. And so you just being consistent in the presence helps even illuminate and make this part of the story be an opportunity where we can have it take on flesh and be Very able to live much. that out. 
I was just going to use that word uh, in flesh. Like, yes, God takes on flesh in the per- in the presence or in the person of a group leader who shows that consistent love and patience and grace. Uh, not, it's not going soft on sin or saying that the wrong things that you might have done are not wrong. It's saying God loves you anyway. And even though the things that are broken, whether because of stuff you've done or what's been done to you, it's not broken beyond God's redeeming Mm. influence. And so, yeah, that's certainly something that is encouraging to us. And we see it happening in the uh, unfolding of the biblical story. So by the time we get here, it's like, we need a leader. We we definitely need a leader, someone who's going to model what it means to be the people of God. And that's where the Bible is really desperate to introduce us to David. So I've said it like this in the book, in the good land, God's people don't always have good leaders, which we've seen. But because God wants to lead his people in the way of life, God promises an everlasting king from the line of David. So David is introduced, but it's not just about David. It's a king from the line of David. David's dynasty is supposed to... uh, lead God's people in the right way. And what uh, David wants to do very early on, he says, God, I'm going to build you a house. And of course, he's referring to a temple. And God's like, well, that's fine, but you're actually not going to do that. That'll happen later. But here's what's important. I'm going to build you a house, which means a dynasty, an everlasting kingdom. So we get that snapshot toward an everlasting kingdom. That's in 2 Samuel 7. And that again, looms very large for Jesus when how is Jesus introduced to us? One key way is the son of David, that promised one, the, the, this uh, person in the dynasty who will establish an everlasting kingdom. We get the, the first um, echoes of that right here. And yeah, we need that. And that ends up being a really sad story because none of them end up measuring up to David. And you read that run from you know first second or first samuel all the way through second kings and it's okay the rise of david and the establishment of of the land and we're in the land and we've got a good leader he's not all the time good but he's mostly good he's called a man after god's own heart but it just mostly goes downhill from there a few high points along the way but it leads ultimately to the sixth frame which is exile because the, the question at the end of frame five is, will God's people trust God's love and follow God's leadership? And unfortunately, no. I mean, if you just have to give one answer, no. Sometimes the answer is yes, uh, for a little bit, maybe here and there, hints of it. But on the whole, no. So it keeps eventually going to, <laughs> I'm going to choose to go my own way, going yes. back to frame, frame two in a lot of ways. Everything is tending toward no. So yes, that same rebellion we saw in frame two is showing up again. And that does lead to exile. And you could describe exile in this way that God's people cheated on their relationship with God. They uh, forsook their responsibility to be a light to the nations. And as a result, they're carried off into exile away from the promised land. And so what are they crying out for? Rescue. (laughs) They they didn't live up to their relationship or responsibility. And now they need to be rescued again because life is really bad. First, uh, the Northern Kingdom was taken off in that 722 BC by the Assyrians. And then in 586, the Southern Kingdom uh, where Jerusalem was, was taken by the Babylonians. And these are just, they're, they're being subject to all the world powers who are rising up and saying, hey, we're in charge now. And they come knocking on the door of God's people. And we're like, no, we're God's people. We're impenetrable. You can't take over us. Uh, and God's like, well, no, they can't because I'm on your side. But in fact, you've chosen not to be on my side. So 
they, if that's what you want, then they're going to have their way. And so this is all in the prophets, right? Isaiah, Jeremiah, mm-hmm. Ezekiel, and so forth. And most of the, you know, the prophets in, in just in general terms were written like right before the exile saying, Hey, something's about to happen. You need to turn from your ways or like right in the midst of the exile, trying to interpret these very disorienting events or after the exile, trying to make sense of everything where we're now in a foreign land, where we're lamenting the fact that we're not in the land that God promised to us. So that's when you're in the part of the Bible that is in the prophets, that's kind of where they're speaking from one of those three places. And their basic interpretation is, it's not that these foreign kingdoms and these, and their foreign gods are bigger than our God. It's that our God has let our, our sin essentially overtake us. We, we chose to forsake this relationship. And mm. so our God's like, if that's the way you want to go, then I guess that's the way you want to go. And so their gods are not more powerful than our God, but our God is allowing evil to have its way because that's essentially what we've chosen. And so we're exiled. So even another visual, like God didn't move the nation of Israel, the nation of Judah moved away from God and God's still standing here with an open door saying, Hey, I want you to, to be for me, choose me. But instead they keep running away and sure. choosing something else. Yeah. And this is like, times a thousand, you know, we've, we've been around this. The, thing. Cy- the cycle yeah. has been yeah. over and over and over right. again. It's not like, oh, you messed up once. And it's just, it has become clear that, oh, this is what you want. You want to continue. You could put it in the terms like we did in frame two. You can continue to define what's good on your own terms. And so all the injustice and oppression and all the immorality of every kind and just it's there in God's people. It's like, well, of course that might exist out there with the other nations as they're pursuing other gods. And sometimes even the prophets will look at the other nations and speak judgment on them. Like, of course that's not good. And oftentimes the effect of that is you get people looking at all those other nations and pointing the finger. And then what do the prophets do? They come back and say, look in the mirror, you're worse than they are. And you have access to the source of life. The Mm. creator God is your God. You're supposed to be nourished by that relationship to the point that you would reflect something different to the rest of the world. But look at the rest of the world and it's, it's worse in you than it is out there because of the ways that you've forsaken this relationship with God. So there is a lot of extreme judgment kind of language in the prophets. This is one of the things where you, when you know the arc of the story, it helps you at least download these things. I mean, it's still disturbing to read like, oh, wow, God is amped up here. But at least you have some context for what is, uh, you know, what's transpired here and why God is angry. It's not that God is just some flippant, careless, you know, uh, quick to lose, fly off the handle kind of a God. It's like, we, we established a special relationship. I offered myself to you. You responded and said you're in for that, that you want to be a part of that. So we're just trying to react to the fact that you have um, gone back on what you committed to do. And like, how, how is the blessing of the world supposed to get to the world if God's chosen vehicle for that is, you know, broken down and... And Hosea is maybe even a great picture of, of that, that just succinctly puts that whole time period of, of God in a lot of ways asking yep. a prophet to marry a yep. prostitute and the prostitute continues to leave Hosea, AKA Israel continues to leave God time and time again. Yep. And I'm sure there's a lot and loaded like, in there, but right. that's the basic of the story. How are you supposed to maintain a marriage 
in a situation like that. That's the position that God is in. And uh, it's, it's illustrated very vividly for Hosea. Hosea like takes that on in a very literal way. And that's the situation God is in. Which kind of leads to this question that allows us to turn yes. the seventh frame, but the sixth frame kind of wraps up is, with this. Like, is there any hope? Can yeah. God's people still shine a light to the nations, even though they've chosen to live in darkness? And uh, the answer is yes. And that's where the promise comes in. And this is also embedded in the prophets. The same prophets who have words of extreme judgment also have words of extreme love and opportunity for redemption and just trying to uh, talk about God's commitment to God's promises and to God's people. So I, I say it like this in the book, God loves and keeps his promises, even when people don't. God will again rescue his people and still bless all nations. So here, here's, here's the best thing about this one. This is my family, my 10-year-old daughter. We got to this part. And she just said this reflection. She just said, oh, God's, God's really determined. Hmm. <laughs> and I said, yes, he <laughs> is. I'm so glad you noticed. So, you know, she was picking up something from the movement of the story. And that's where you get several promises. Again, also in Isaiah and Jeremiah and hmm. Ezekiel and pictured in different ways. Ezekiel 37, of course, with the Valley of Dry Bones that stands up and becomes like an army. Hmm a picture that God's not done yet. And uh, the whole second part of Isaiah, after Isaiah 40, speak comfort to my people mm. and I'm not done. It'd be too small a thing for me to just restore my people, Israel. This is Isaiah 49, but no, I, this promise I'm doing is for all nations. Well, of course it is because what story are we a part of? We're part of a story mm -hmm. that it involves at a critical moment, God's saying, I'm choosing you, Israel, for the sake of all the nations. And God's mm -hmm. saying, game on still, even after the mess you've made, we're still game on. And it cultivates this longing for the fulfillment of that story. But the Old Testament does end without all of that tied up. It's We're still longing for it, even though... There is a return to the land. A lot of people that got exiled do get to return to the land. We rebuild the city. We rebuild the temple. But there is still a sense that whatever God is really promising is unfulfilled. And we're waiting for something to happen. To, to go back to probably the ultimate summary statement of the Old Testament, isn't God so determined? Uh, what a great takeaway from often a part of the Bible that people often view as judgment and sure. war and strife, but they miss God in that whole story remaining right next to the nation of Israel in a lot of ways, calling the one to bless the many. Yep. And it is, there's a reflection, there's a reflection there on what it means for God to be loving and just. I think those are two sides of the same coin. It's like, if God has a plan to bless all nations, but his covenant partners are persisting in not partnering with him, and in fact, multiplying the opposite of that, what is God to do? Because God loves the world that God made, like God has to respond with justice. And we, we need, we're, we're essentially crying out, God, this ain't fair. Like something, mm. something wrong's happening here. And so we're calling on God to make it right. Unfortunately, the people that he's chosen to be in a right relationship with him 
are the ones that are acting not right and they're part of the problem. And that's, I mean, that puts God in a real tough situation. <laughs> and uh, that's where you really begin to appreciate the portrait of God as patient and slow to anger and abounding in love and forgiving to, the, you know, thousands of generations. Like, so those uh, portraits of God are very real and very vivid in the Old Testament even as, yes, you can cherry pick some verses of judgment. And if you want to just walk away and say, oh, see right there, God's a mean God. I mean, you can do that, but that's not really being faithful to the story. That's not really being faithful to the, the portrait of God that the Bible is trying to give us. And when you talk about the portrait of God that the Bible wants to give us, it is pointing to Jesus because that is where we really see what God is like. So that leads to the eighth frame. We're into the New Testament. Like we said, Old Testament is kind of a cliffhanger. It's waiting to be resolved, waiting to be fulfilled. And then in Jesus, I've written it like this. uh, God comes to love and lead his people through Jesus. Mm. Jesus is the one God promised. He calls us to repent from our way of doing things and follow him. Which, yeah, no surprise. We've seen what happens when we insist on our way of doing things, on our definitions of good. And Jesus is called good, uh, aligning himself with the good God that made the world and say, live in, in line with me. In fact, my very own life, I will share with you. I will nourish mm-hmm. you. I will give you life. I will be that fountain of living water bubbling up in you that never runs dry. I will give you food to eat that never spoils. I'm the good shepherd. I mean, all of these images that Jesus is just working and reworking, trying to help everybody understand who he is and what he came to do. And he says the kingdom of God, God's rule, the kind of rule that the world needs in order to be healed from everything that ails it, that kind of rule is here right now in me. And of course, you got the... uh, the the troubling thing for some people that it doesn't look like a king. He doesn't look like a person of power. doesn't look like a person of influence. He looks just like a carpenter's son from the backwater town of Nazareth. How could he possibly be all of these things? How could he possibly fulfill all of our hopes? And that's some of what you get. And when the New Testament is telling the Jesus story and you got people coming at Jesus with these kinds of questions and yet, oh my goodness, he's doing these deeds of power that really are announcing the, the, the kingdom of God coming in power, putting wrongs right. And Jesus is speaking with authority that seems like only God himself would have. Like, who is this little carpenter's son who <laughs> doesn't really look like much? So it, it's not everybody can swallow that. Not everybody can kind of take that on board, so to speak. But Jesus is in every way leading in the way that God wants. And uh, of course, ultimately his story climaxes with the cross and the burial and the resurrection. And the claim is that like a whole new world is being opened up because of what God is doing in Jesus and and actually changing the heart of people, transforming us into, you know, we're still in the image of God, but he's now, we're being transformed into the image of Jesus. And that, that eternal life source is available to us, which we forfeited in the garden. And now it can be not dependent on meeting God at the temple, but in fact, meeting God in Jesus. And so images of temple get reimagined 
imagined in Jesus. Now to be with Jesus is to be in the presence of God and uh, images of promised land. It's like, it's not about the geographical land anymore. It's about the whole world being claimed as the promised land. Mm -hmm. And to, to experience Jesus is to, in, in essence, dwell in the good land with God. And, uh, you know, the holy city, it's like where uh, the, the holy city of Jerusalem, it's not about those geographical borders. It's like, we're, we're like embodying that. It's, it's not about huddling together in the city. It's about Jesus sending us out then into the whole world to all nations. Because of course, what story are we a part of? We're part of a story where God promised to bless all nations. And now through Jesus' victory over evil and death on the cross and in the resurrection, that story can get on track and spread to all nations in a way that uh, can accomplish what God was hoping to do. So uh, those are a few things. There's tons of themes and tons of ways you can just talk about the significance of Jesus that I'm just summarizing a few things here, but um, that's obviously a really important frame. And yeah. And when you see the story framed out like this, you begin to see that Jesus didn't just click a reset button. Mm. In a lot of ways, Jesus is coming to fulfill the story and the frames that have come before him. And in a lot of ways, helps set us up for these last two frames that we, in some ways, get to, to play a part of. So the question is, what does Jesus' victory over sin and death mean for us? And that's where the church comes in. Again, Jesus' story real quickly is he came, lived, died, was buried, rose, ascended, and will come again. So, in between ascended and will come again, the Spirit descends on the church. And so, now Jesus is still present, but in a new way. His bodily form is via his Spirit dwelling in the bodies of his people, and they, you know, collectively and individually. So, the Spirit is here. Jesus is alive through his uh, Spirit. He forms the church to live by the power of his Spirit, and the church is sent as the body of Christ on earth to extend God's rule, love, and light to the world. So, that's how I've written it and summarized it in the book. And we really, um, we take up that same vocation that was given to God's humans in Genesis 1, right? To be the image bearers, to rule and multiply on the earth, and to now just do that through the power of Jesus in his spirit, and to extend the, the kingdom rule that uh, Jesus has came to inaugurate. So, we have a it's a new image of what it means to be the people of God. It's no longer dependent on a king in a in one locale uh, ruling a geographic territory. God is claiming the whole world for himself. And the king's throne was that cross and mm. the king's crown was that crown of thorns. But yet he is victorious over our biggest enemy, which isn't Babylon or Assyria or Rome, of course, mm. which was ruling at the mm -hmm. time. The church developed under the thumb of the Roman Empire. The answer was not to get Caesar out of power so that we could get one of our guys in the seat of power. No, the, the power is available in Christ through the power of the resurrection. And it doesn't depend on ruling any geographical territory. It depends on God's spirit transforming and renewing individuals who give their life to Christ and commit to walk in God's ways. And then God's rule takes up residence in their heart and mm -hmm. then through them is extended to the world. It's not the way that we would have thought. It's not, you know, Jesus wasn't what we would have thought. And the church isn't what we would typically think of in terms of how, you know, you would influence the rest of the world. But God is saying, no, the promise I made to Abraham is being fulfilled and Jesus is now being fulfilled through the church. This is the vehicle through which I am working to bring my blessing to the entire world. And that gives a lot of meaning 
to the church and to us as part of the church. Each of us are part of the body. And so all those body images in the church, mm-hmm. like, yeah, the eye can't say to the hand, I don't need you. Uh, you no, know, all the parts are needed. Everybody's got different gifts and different roles to play. And it's a beautiful thing where the body of Christ, Christ is the head, Christ is calling the shots, Christ is you know, animating the whole body by, by virtue of the spirit. Mm-hmm. And that is part of the way that God is going to bring the world to its destiny, which is a nod toward um, frame 10. And, and you know, verse, uh, excuse me, Second Corinthians 5, 17 says, if anyone is in Christ, there is new creation. So mm. that's, that's frame 10. Frame 10 is a new creation. And we're going to read, we're going to get pictures of that uh, at the end of the Bible. But you actually have a picture of that in the life of any individual who gives themselves to Christ because right there, there's new creation. A new world is coming to being in that person when they give themselves to Christ. And wh- that's what's happening in not just that individual, but in the church for the sake of the world. So always kind of seeing, if I was drawing three concentric circles, individuals being reformed as part of the church, wider circle being reformed as part of the whole world, you know, widest circle being transformed by the influence of Christ and the spirit of Christ. So kind of always having those uh, images in your mind. And that anticipates the, uh, the one day Mm. when, uh, you know, Revelation writes, uh, it, it is commenting a lot on just the current reality and what Jesus' victory over sin and death means, like living mm-hmm. in the current Roman Empire. And it also points our eyes to the future, talking about one day God will defeat evil for good and make all things new. And even now, everyone who trusts Jesus can be remade as a sign of God's coming new creation. So we live now in hope of God's new world, and we pray God's kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven. Mm-hmm. That's kind of how I describe frame 10. We get that picture of what new creation looks like and just grabbing a few of the images. I think we're all familiar with some of the no mores, right? Mm-hmm. No more crying, no more pain, no more sadness, no more death, no more sin. The evil is thrown down. It's burned up. There's no threat of that. You get uh, images of the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. The Mm. tree of life is there producing fruit, the stream of water running down the middle of the city, you know, the streets of gold and just the purity. You're you're washing your robes in the blood of the lamb and and coming with white robes. I mean, these these are all just picture language, but they're saying something powerful about the purity and the beauty of the new world that God is bringing about, taking care of evil, which is something we weren't equipped to do, but in Jesus' name, evil is put in its place and it's not going to disturb what's Mm -hmm. being done in the new creation. And so we find ourselves now longing for that. And that's why on the last page of the Bible, one of the last sentences in the Bible is, come Lord Jesus. In light of that thing, Come, Lord Jesus, mm-hmm. we need that. And it helps us hear Jesus' instructions about prayer in a fresh way to be people who pray right now. Uh, God, hallow your name right now uh, on earth as it is in heaven. Let your will be done. Let your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. We got to be those kind of people right now because through Jesus and the power of the spirit, new creation is breaking into the old. One day it's going to happen in a full and final and thorough way. 
right now it's happening like the future is coming back into the present and showing up in these uh, little outbursts. If you want to say outbursts of Eden, right? Back on the first mm-hmm. page, like outbursts of Eden are available in the midst of this old broken down world through the power of God's spirit. That's a way to describe what's happening when a person says yes to Jesus and they allow themselves to be transformed, their heart to be changed, not just to follow all the rules, but no, their, their heart is truly changed. And then out of that overflow, yeah, they live in accordance with God's design, little signs of new creation. And when that happens among communities, then that whole community testifies as a sign of new creation. And we anticipate the coming new creation. So I'm starting to kind of ramble on here, but those are the 10 frames. I think we got through them all. Yeah, we got through. And so if you had to add the you are here sign for where we're currently at, like right now, you and I and our group leaders, it's in between frames nine and 10, a lot of ways of, of us being the church, which I just love the picture that you paint, not of the church as a building Mm -hmm. or an organization or a business, Mm -hmm. but the church as a group of people on mission, hoping and yearning for the new creation in light of Jesus coming and creating a new kingdom for us to live, Mm -hmm. live into. And we need to do all the practical things like to stay connected to the life source, right? Can't, that vision doesn't become a reality unless we're connected to the source and, and thus the things that we do very practically, like showing up to students groups and, connecting ourselves to the body and connecting ourselves to God and connecting ourselves to the story and hearing the story be told and r- reminding ourselves that that's the real story of the world. In spite of all the other stories that tell me I'm a self-made person or I should just get what I can or that, um, you know, yeah, there's lots of competing stories, all right? Self-actualization and all that. No, no, this is the real story. This is where the world's headed. This is where I can be a part of it. So yeah, you nurture a relationship with God. That's why you read the Bible so you can stay connected with God. You do that in community with others so you can be encouraged and picked up when you're falling down and uh, redirected when you're wandering off course. So, I mean, it translates into all those practical things. And uh, I'm grateful for all the student leaders that are just, themselves drinking up the story, living this story, and then helping students do the same. And so let this be an encouragement to just be caught up in that story, to become reacquainted with the the drama of the story. And uh, maybe just a few practical things. Uh, we could give a number of examples, but I guess I mentioned, uh, I think I used the example of Galatians earlier. So here's the whole story we just told. All right. You say, hey, let's study Galatians. Let's read in Galatians. Well, you notice there, Paul's pretty lit up. He's, he's pretty upset with the church that's meeting in, in Galatia because they're separating Jews and Gentiles. Like in, in the lunchroom, they're not eating together mm. because Jews have different customs around food and Gentiles have different customs. And so the Jewish people are essentially saying, what makes you, what defines you as a person of God is your Jewish custom. Mm-hmm. Well, you, if you know this whole story, you already, you, you know where Paul's coming from to say that's totally out of touch with the story that God is telling. That's totally out of touch with what God was trying to demonstrate in Jesus when he made these two groups one. From the beginning, God's choosing of the Gentiles, they were set apart so that they could be a blessing to all of the nations. And that's not being fulfilled in Jesus. It's not so about you your Jewish that, custom. The Jews were, were set aside to be that, not the Gentiles. The Jews were called and set apart to yes. be able to be a blessing. Yes, for, I, might, I might have misspoke. But yes, the Jews were called and set apart to be a blessing to all of the nations. And Paul's looking at like this, this group of people. He's, he's essentially saying, you're living out of step with the story. 
you're, you're, you don't make sense in what you're doing. You can't say you believe in Jesus and behave this way in, in your practical way of life as a community. So he's just, he's telling the story. This story started with Abraham was fulfilled in Jesus as a blessing to all nations. And we don't need to divide over these customs and pretend like your customs are what make you the people of God. No, your connection to Jesus is what makes you the people of God, Jewish, Gentile, whatever, whatever, wherever your background is from. So I'm just saying, when you have that context, as you go into Galatians, you have this big picture understanding, you know, okay, here's the whole mall map. Here's where I am in Galatians. I bring all that to bear on my reading of Galatians. And that's what Paul's bringing to bear as he's writing Galatians, right? He, he's got, he's bringing that kind of a perspective. We alluded to earlier, um, when you're reading in the, in the prophets, you know, getting lost in all of, you know, Isaiah's railing or Jeremiah's railing or something like that. When you have this big story perspective, it helps you just contextualize those things and know what to do with those things and mm-hmm. walk away with a greater understanding and not just say, oh, God's really ticked off. I guess he's having a bad day or something. No, you understand that, they have a special relationship and this is the purpose why God called them and all of that. So you, you're able to um, just download that in a way that increases understanding. Cause again, you just have that small little snippet, mm-hmm. but you also have that big mall map kind of a perspective. Same thing. Just a few more examples. I mean, when, when Jesus, first page of the New Testament, you open up, say, hey, read mm-hmm. the New Testament. What are you going to read? Well, this is the story. This is the, the history the genealogy of Jesus, son of David, son of Abraham. So right there, like, what, what does that even mean to you? Who, who's David and who's Abraham? Exactly. Well, now you know. And and so, they're setting you up to say, as we tell the story of Jesus, we're telling it as knitted to this story that has been unfolding. The significance of Abraham as a promise to, uh, or to fulfill God's promise to bless the whole world. Well, somehow Jesus is going to fit in line with that. The significance of David to bring an everlasting kingdom through David's line. Well, somehow Jesus is going to fit in line with that. Okay. Yeah. That really helps to know. I mean, that's how Jesus introduced when you open the new Testament and you have that context. When Jesus says the kingdom of God is near, like it's at hand, it's right now. That's a pretty uh, amazing kind mm-hmm. of a claim that uh, it's hard to understand. Cause it's like, you don't look like a King, but you got to listen to him and see what he means by kingdom because apparently he doesn't mean what everybody else seems to mean when they talk about advancing their kingdom. And so you got to pay attention and you learn something about God and the way God wants to rule the world. It happens to be different from the way everybody else rules the world. So just trying to give a few examples of how you have the whole mall map when you're holding any little bits of the Bible, this can kind of help achieve mm-hmm. understanding. And then once you know what it was trying to say, then you can have a little more understanding of what it means as you then respond to it and try to live in accordance with the story. And so this is where like just even having those pictures or even some sort of visual is just really helpful for you. Once again, just like a map to point you are here in light of all this happening behind it, light of what's coming to bear. This is kind of where that context fits in. And even uh, I know you took it as far as to creating a large visual that you put up in your house and then had to take back to your office. But you have even a way of being able to point and kind of grab the visual nature of all those things too. In the tool itself, there's a picture. So if you've got the 10 frames book in front of you, everyone comes up with a summary that I wrote. I've, I've, I think I've read most of those just like two sentences, a picture, which is a 
more like a hand-drawn picture, something that most anyone could draw themselves. And then some biblical text, the the biblical text that tells the story that is essentially narrating what's going on. And it's just straight from the Bible. And then uh, kind of a leading question that gets you into the next frame. So every, everything is designed that way. And so, yeah, I've taken those pictures and just put them up and I I use it as a teaching tool when I'm in my small group, whatever we're reading, it's just like, okay, again, if we're going to read Galatians, it's just like, Hey, where are we? Let's orient ourselves. Oh, okay. Yeah. This is the church part of the story. And Paul's writing to a church. They're trying to figure out what it means to live in light of Jesus and just like we are. And then, yeah, it helps you understand that. So I, I do that with my kids around the dinner table. When we uh, read the Bible around the dinner table, it's just like, all right, we're going to open this part, but we open to this part. Where are we? My daughter came home the other day. They had read about Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego in the fiery furnace. And I just said, oh, so, okay. So Maya, what, uh, what part of the Bible is that? And I think she guessed wrong the first time, but then she get no exile. Oh yeah, because because right they're in Babylon, right? So if they're in Babylon, what does that mean? Oh yeah, they're in exile. Mm-hmm. They've been taken out of the good land, and so somehow God's faithfulness is showing up. God's not done with His people, even though they've been taken from the good land, even though their temple is in ruins and their city is destroyed. God is still somehow the God of these people in that foreign land, and within that context, then yeah, you read the story of. The fiery furnace, right? And God's faithfulness in that time. So, yeah, situations like that, it's been helpful for me. And I'm a visual person, so I like to kind of always locate myself in that way. Yeah. So just even kind of as you take this in, just let this be encouragement. I think Luke mentioned this right at the very beginning, but if this is new to you, if you're just beginning to pick up on this story, maybe give this episode another listen, maybe dive a little bit deeper into the book and begin to start reading some of the verses that are highlighted there, begin to understand and orient and integrate the story into your own life. And then as an action step, once you're starting to feel more comfortable with that, look for just little opportunities, even make it a game. Like uh, I know Luke wasn't necessarily making a game of pick where pick where in the Bible we are, but that's something that students will gravitate towards. So even in the group, begin to help orient them. And the beginning, you might be pointing and directing just like a guide when you're first going on a journey is going to show you exactly what to do. And over time, as you begin to integrate this into the, the life of your students group, you'll begin to find that Hopefully, as you begin to guide them, they'll begin to start picking up and there'll be a few students that'll get it first. But as you go, eventually your whole group will be able to understand the story of the Bible. And I think that's in a lot of ways so much more powerful than knowing just all the facts and the names, while those, once again, are very important. But Mm -hmm. if we can begin to integrate and orient our lives and our group's lives and even our whole church and our community's lives towards the story of the Bible, I think it will begin to speak for itself in so many ways. If you want to read some concise summaries of the Bible in the Bible itself, you could read Nehemiah 9. You'd have basically the whole Old Testament right there. You could read Acts 7. That's Stephen's speech. And that goes basically from Abraham all the way up through Jesus. You read the speeches in Acts. A lot of them are doing that. Even in Acts 13, that's kind of roots itself from the Exodus all the way up through the church. So just it narrates the story of the Bible right there. Just kind of help you put some of those big pieces in place. So even the story of the Bible is helping you see and orient your, mm-hmm. the story to the Bible. And just so for you to be able to have these little glimpses, help us be able to see this together as a whole. Well, it's one of the ways that the, the leaders of God's people have always figured out who they are. They tell the story, 
They remember the story. They rehearse the story. They talk about what's happened. How did we get here? Because once you know that, you have a sense about what this moment needs to be about and then where we need to go in the future. So yeah, at, at lots of different points, they just tell the story. And some of the Psalms do that and several other places too. But so just that, and then maybe one more piece, what kind of story are we a part of? We're part of a story that begins with creation and ends with new creation. And in the middle, Jesus comes and does new creation kinds of things. Mm -hmm. All that is to say, uh, sometimes we just assume, well, what's the Bible about? Well, it's about getting to heaven someday. It's about escaping this earth and going off to some place with God. Okay. Well, it's really not the driving force of the story. The, the, the Bible is interested. God's promise is to renew all things. And so the final vision is the image of a whole renewed creation and you as a renewed person within that, right? But it's not really about escaping and going off somewhere. It's about God's renewed creation. The final vision is God is heaven coming to earth. And so heaven and earth being reunited and God being all in all and God's present being there. And so we long for those things. When you aim your life in that kind of a direction, I think that is a pretty comprehensive vision for life. It's a meaningful, it's a purposeful vision for life. It helps me know what to do, not just um, trying to escape someday and you know the world's gonna blow up or whatever. I don't think that's really what the Bible talks about in terms of the destiny of the world. God's renewing this place and he's doing it in a very distinct way through Jesus, not through technology, not that technology is bad, not through you know human models of progress and improvement, not that progress is bad, but it's just to say that the way God will renew God's creation is through Jesus and through the spirit of Jesus working in and through God's people. And so if you wanna be a part of that, open yourself up to that, walk in the way of Jesus and allow the Spirit to renew you day after day after day in advance of the day when God will renew all things mm -hmm. in Jesus' name. And I think that's a pretty hopeful and compelling vision for life. I say, I think it's definitely something that if we allow the Bible to speak for itself, mm. it just tends to yeah. grab our hearts. It tends to touch on these longings that we have deep inside that allows us to truly see the story that God's trying to tell inside of us, but also throughout the whole story of the Bible and throughout the whole world. Amen. Good word. Awesome. Well, thank you again, Luke, for, for jumping on. We're so grateful to have someone in the executive pastor seat who's championing mm -hmm. students who cares deeply about uh, students growing to become better disciples, more students becoming disciples themselves. And at the same time, to know that one of the best ways to do that is through our disciple makers. So thank yeah. you. May it be so. Thank you. And say just as a reminder what you do matters but even more so who you are and who you are becoming in christ is even more important than what we do if we're going to be able to make disciples we have to first be disciples ourselves so let's commit personally to walking the walk with jesus to live out the mountain walk by loving god loving people and serve the world because everything rises and falls on the strength of our disciple makers and our process to connect students to them see you next time <laughs>